0: Good morning. I'm Chris Williams, and welcome to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. Have you ever looked at something so horrifying that you couldn't look away? It might have been gross or strange and completely disgusting, but you kept your eyes on it anyway? What is it about human nature that makes us act this way? Today we'll be talking about the monstrous, the grotesque, and why we're drawn to things that might disgust us. Later on, we'll hear from Fordham professors Rebecca June and Dean McKay, but first, I wanted to find out more about the history of the so-called freak shows on Coney Island.
1: Step this way, the strangest sights on the island. Bricks from the four corners of the world. what two one dime, a
0: ten part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's if you went to Coney Island during the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, there's no way you would want to leave before missing the freak show.
1: Inside. Zip and pip the pin people. A sample of the marvelous fricks you'll see for the price of a small...
0: You'd see Lionel, the lion-faced man. He had long and thick hair all over his face, and his act included gymnastic tricks. Or you might have seen Aloisa Wagner, born with neither arms nor legs. She demonstrated her abilities such as sewing or lighting a cigarette using only her mouth. So, what about today? <laughs> Adam Ryn grew up on Coney Island, and now he teaches a sideshow class for people who want to learn how to eat fire, walk on broken glass, or survive an electric shock. He wants to keep the sideshow tradition alive, but not the exploitative part of it. He says it's all about celebrating differences. You teach a class, a sideshow class, right, on Coney Island?
2: Yeah, I teach the, uh, sideshow, the Coney Island Sideshow School. And I'm the Dean and Professor of the Sideshow Skills Workshop.
0: So, what kind of things do you teach? Uh, we teach what are called the working
2: acts of the sideshow. So, in that class, the um, students will learn sword swallowing, fire eating, uh, how to do the human blockhead.
0: So, how do you teach these things? You know, it's it's not something that's like it's something that you can actually teach them.
2: Well, anything, and I mean anything, can be learned. Uh, the only barrier that separates. The actual learning from, you know, the, the, the only thing that's, that, that, that that prevents a student from learning these things is what goes on inside their heads. If you come in with the right attitude and a willingness to learn, you'll learn it, yeah.
0: So how long, is, how long does it take to learn these things, to learn these well, performances?
2: some of the acts are taught and learned easier than others. Um, so you've got, let's say, on the easy end, um, laying on a bed of nails. I mean, just lay down on it. It's a matter of your comfort level. Um, whereas learning fire eating can take quite a while depending on your comfort. No one is used to having a fireball thrust in your face. So it does take a certain amount of courage, a certain amount of, of really kind of you know mind control to be able to overcome any kind of fear associated with that.
0: So I know a good magician never reveals his tricks, but are these real, you know, are people actually laying down on an actual bed of nails? Are they actually eating fire and swallowing swords? Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, you know, it's it's interesting what you said. Magicians never reveal their secrets. And what the students are learning at Science Show School, what I'm teaching is the last thing from magic. I mean, these are, you know, magic is about illusion, it's about fakery, it's about trickery. And I mean, that's not to detract from magicians. I mean, it it takes years to be able to accomplish certain slights and certain maneuvers. But what I'm teaching and what the students are learning in the Sideshow School are real, to a certain extent, body modifications. I mean, you've got to be comfortable with your body. To be able to swallow a sword I mean the sword is really going down you know there's, there's no trick to it the secret and, and I I'll tell you the secret is mind and body control everyone's got a gag reflex and your gag reflex is your, is, is your body's way of telling you you're putting something down your throat that doesn't belong the mind control you've got to convince yourself that swallowing any amount of steel is actually a normal thing to do so unless you can Really overcome both the body and the mind. You're not going to do it.
0: It sounds like that's hard to teach, though.
2: Well, the method is easy to teach. This is how you do it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not starting with a sword. We're starting with a a softer, you know, implement. That I'm not going to tell you what we're starting with, but um, you know, we're starting with something that's a little more flexible. So it's a matter of controlling the gag. And when I teach the students, I explain that swallowing a sword can be compared – I know it sounds like a far stretch – can be compared to quitting smoking cigarettes. If you've ever been a smoker, your body has both a mental and a physical uh, addiction to the cigarette. The cigarette gives off nicotine. The nicotine triggers your brain into thinking, ah, things are great. And that is the physical addiction. The mental addiction is your routines. You wake up in the morning, you want a cigarette. You walk to the train, you want a cigarette. You get out of the train, you want a cigarette. You go to lunch, you want a cigarette. You're coming back from lunch, you want a cigarette. You know, so it's the, the time of the day that, and, and your routines, your daily routines, that guide you towards these cigarettes. Now, in order to quit smoking, you've got to conquer both The mental and the physical if you believe you can do it you will do it if you have any doubts in your mind well you know what I gagged today so I'm no I'll try it again next week guess what you'll never learn
0: what made you interested in in uh, in the sideshow act to begin with
2: Uh, I grew up in Coney Island and as a kid in the '80s, you know, a pre preteen teenager in the '80s, came across Sideshows by the seashore when it was up on the boardwalk, and um, just fell in love with it. I mean, at that point, we're talking early mid '80s. Saw you know some of the first shows that they had done up on the boardwalk with what could now be considered kind of like the the last of the golden age of performers of the sideshow. I mean, these were people who spent their lives touring the state fairs, touring with sideshows all across the country, and literally ended their careers in Coney Island. In that first wave of shows that I had seen was uh, Melvin Burkhardt, the original human blockhead. I mean, he was the guy who made an act out of hammering a nail into the face. Uh, Otis Jordan, who in Coney Island was billed as the human cigarette factory, but on the sideshow circuit was billed as the frog boy. And he had these ossified ossified arms and legs, couldn't move and was wheeled up on the stage, and would roll and smoke cigarettes uh, using
0: only his mouth. I think what you just were talking about it kind of segues into another thing I wanted to ask you about is sort of the history of sideshows. Because for me, when you know, when I think about you know older sideshows, you know they were known as freak shows, and a lot of times a lot of the performers were physically deformed or had some type type of condition, you know, where they had hair all over them or something mm-hmm. like that. Do you feel like that was exploitative? Because I mean, today. It seems like it's more about performance.
2: Now, traditionally, there were different tiers within the sideshow. You had the lowest level, which were the working acts those things that can be learned, the fire eating, the sword swallowing, the blockhead. Then you had the self-inflicted performers, the tattooed people, the heavily pierced people. These are people who made a conscious decision saying, okay, I'm going to... Pierce myself. I'm going to tattoo myself. I'm choosing to live outside of society. I'm choosing to work in a freak show. Then the highest rung of sideshow performer were the born difference. You know, the people that were literally born, like you said, with hair all over their face and body, or uh, you know, with, with with extra limbs, or or twins. And what happened over the years was both political correctness got in the way. You know, people were looking and saying – I should say, you know, spectators and and those on the outside were looking and saying, you know, you're exploiting these people. You're putting them on display, and it's not fair. Truth be told, the – born freaks very often were the highest paid performers in the sideshow for the simple reason that this is what people wanted to go see. A lot of cases it was the freaks that actually owned and ran the sideshows. So to say that they were being exploited? No, they really haven't been. They really weren't. I'm not saying in all cases. In some cases, I'm sure they were. But in many cases, these were really, truly the highest paid performers.
0: Yeah, and um. I was actually reading up on it a little bit, and it seemed to me like a lot of the born different people, as you call them, um, mm-hmm. that they sort of, the sideshows kind of provided them a place in society where they could actually work and, and be part of something where, you know, at the time, the, that necessarily wasn't the case for them anywhere else. Exactly.
2: Society has become a lot more open to people who look different, but that sixty, seventy, eighty years ago, it was nothing like that. I mean, they really had no other choice to be you know, the, the choices were be institutionalized or work as a productive member in society at a
0: sideshow. The is side pretty much all about, you know, human oddities and whether that's performed or, you know, it's it's with a person from birth. It it's still it still draws people in, you know, people like to watch these things because they're, you know, strange and different. What is it about it, do you think, that pe- that draws people in? You know, why do they come to watch these things?
2: It's because we can do things that you can't. Look at, uh, what is it, America's Got Talent? And, I mean, that's that's basically a modern-day freak show. You know, it, it's, it's a variety show. It's It's, you know, there's a lot. I mean, I've heard a lot of negative about it, but I've also heard some positive about it. But people who are doing things that,
0: most people can't do.
2: And people like that. There's, there's something entertaining about that.
0: What do you think is the mission of the Sideshow, if, if it has one?
2: Well, the mission of the Sideshow, I, I think this is a, a truly unique American art form. And it's really a matter of maintaining this nearly lost, nearly dead American art form.
0: Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Adam. I think that's all my questions. I appreciate you talking to me. Oh, right on. My thanks to Adam for joining me to talk about sideshows and freak shows on Coney Island. This is Chris Williams, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. Now we're going to talk to Professor Rebecca June, who teaches medieval studies at Fordham University. I talked to her about monsters and grotesques, how we define them, and what purpose they serve. How do you define a monster?
1: Yeah, I, I think importantly, a monster always has an element of the unknown but a monster's never pure difference. Otherwise, we would create a category for that thing and, and name it. This is a lion. That's a bear. But if there's some element of, of unknown about that entity, then then it takes on a monstrous quality. It, it, it's more threatening and more dangerous.
0: You mentioned that there are different types of monsters and that they're unknown. So how can we categorize them, or can we?
1: As far as categories, I don't think that you can really have a definite... Um, Limit to the kinds of monsters there are, because that's what makes the monsters. Well, as I said, once you know what it is, it's no longer a monster. So the monster, by its very nature, is is this nebulous thing. Um, so it is hard to categorize them. Anything can be a monster.
0: Why do we choose to believe in monsters? Is there any benefit?
1: They they provide important uh, functions for us. They fill gaps in what we know and understand and then allow us to c- control that that gap to some extent or to um, understand things that we're afraid of and thus control it to an extent. Plus, they they allow us to create our own identity. If I can turn you into a monster, then I, by contrast, have created myself as the not-monster. So they, they provide very important functions, and, and so I think we create them rather than believe in them.
0: Are all monsters evil?
1: I don't think that they can be purely evil because then we wouldn't be able to identify with them at all. They would be that pure other. Um, and what makes monsters so attractive is that we do identify with them. Uh, they're incredibly sympathetic. Uh, we, we feel bad for, for King Kong. A- and, and I think partly because uh, human nature fears that we too are monsters that there's that beast within the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that we're all a form of monster in some sense. So they can't be purely evil. They have to be partly human.
0: You teach a class here at Fordham about medieval monsters. So what are some of the first types of monsters that pop up in texts?
1: They show up really early, our earliest texts really. um, The Bible's full of them. (laughs) Giants are particularly popular. Um, Hybrid beasts that, uh, like the Leviathan, they're sort of fish-like and beast-like. Um, then you have, in Homer, you've got all the, the monsters in there, that, which is even older uh, in chronological terms. Um, so you've got beasts that, that, as we've said already, have human-like characteristics, but they're also uh, animalist, animalistic, and they're, and they're also imaginary to some extent. So they're, they're, they're very hybrid, um, uh, very hard to define. The monster is incredibly difficult to define.
0: <laughs> Did some people from medieval times believe these monsters actually existed, and if so, why?
1: Wow, it's it's hard to know <laughs> to ever say what people actually believed. Uh, what we can do is look at the the texts and see how they're describing those things. Uh, whether you can decide whether they believed them. And so, in for instance, the Liber Monstrorum, the Book of Monsters, that's popular in the in the Middle Ages, you you have these categories monsters, beasts, serpents, Um, and so you get the sense that right there, there's a sense of difference between what a monster is and what a beast is, and yet, even within those categories, there's a difference in the way these creatures are described. Some of them are described as if they're very factual uh, and accepted as truth, while others are, well, people say that these exist, I've heard that these exist, so there's definite skepticism about it. Um, so it's it's always really hard to know uh, what's believed and what isn't, and why. You know, is it belief because I've I've I trust the person who told me about this because I've actually seen it, or because I just want to believe it and I really like this story? Uh, very hard to say. Even today, what what do people really truly believe in and and see as monsters, and what are they just afraid might be possible, or you're just going along with the crowd?
0: How have monsters throughout pop culture shaped our conception of what a monster is?
1: Part of the problem with with images is that once you do have that image, uh, it is it, that be, that monster becomes fixed. Uh, you know the limits of what it's going to look like. Whereas in an oral tale, they can create you can create anything in your mind. But then once it's fixed, it's easier to it it loses its monstrous uh, powers. So you've got to keep making it worse and bigger. So, you know, I I taught a class on uh, werewolves and we traced images of werewolves over a couple of hundred years and they become increasingly macho and increasingly hairy and then they take on glowing eyes and these sort of robotic capabilities just continually escalating the monstrous capabilities of it. Otherwise, it's, it's not scary anymore. Once you put it on a page or put it on a screen, it's, you, ah, that's just my friend, the werewolf.
0: <laughs> monsters in literature and movies are fictional, but who are the real-life monsters in our society?
1: Well, I would argue that, that all monsters are fictional to an extent, um, and so the answer to that question, who are the real monsters, is going to depend on who you ask. And at what time? It's going to be a very different answer in the 1950s than it is today. You know, at one time, miscegenation is going to be the monster. At another time, it might be homosexuality. At another time, it could be, you know, Republicans. And for another person, Democrats. It depends on who's speaking. I I, I did a, a, an assignment in, in one of my classes with uh, students dealing with a story called Biscoe it's a medieval story by Marie de France about a, a a man who's a werewolf. And he's gone three days of the week, and his wife doesn't know where he is. She doesn't know about this. Uh, she, of course, we have unknown here. We have a gap. She fills it in uh, with the monster that she would assign, which is adultery. Oh, he must have another lover. So he finally confesses that, no, he's a, a werewolf. And she, in response, because all she knows of werewolves is that they're beasts that eat people, so she finds a way to consign him to to his werewolf state, to his wolf state, by taking away his clothing. And later on, she's attacked by the wolf, and her nose is cut off, and she's tortured to find out what's going on. And everyone responds to this story with sympathy for the wolf. Uh, so I assigned my students, I said, okay, if, if a wolf in the Middle Ages could represent things like incest and cannibalism, um, and heresy, what is the monster that would be so bad today that you would actually have sympathy with the wife? And they gave them a list of things and let them add to the list, and it was things like um, pedophilia and uh, homosexuality and um, uh, someone who has AIDS or someone who has a mental illness and didn't tell the person that they're with. You know, would you think that this is such a bad thing that you would have sympathy for kicking them out? And um, it was really surprising because you get a sense of what is a monster to the students, what is a monster to each individual based on what they have sympathy with and what they don't have sympathy with. And it's really fascinating. Every single person will define what the real monster is in a very different way. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. He did the monster mash
0: from my laboratory in the
1: castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires
0: feast. Things might be scary or disgusting to us, but at the same time, they have the ability to sort of capture our attention and draw us in. Dean McKay is a psychology professor at Fordham, and a lot of his research focuses on the idea of disgust. I talked to him to find out what disgusts us. And how this can affect us. So, what are some of the things that you found doing this research?
3: Well, one of the things that uh, consistently shows up is that uh, disgust is not something that's as readily treated as fear. So, if we look at the prevailing treatments for fear, especially for phobias, involves what's called exposure treatment, which is where you practice getting closer and closer to the thing that you're most afraid of. Uh, with disgust, you might try to apply the same principle, and what happens is that it's very difficult to get that same kind of uh, reduced disgust reaction through uh, practice in sessions. Uh, it can be done, but it just requires a little bit more vigorous exposure, more frequent exposure. Sometimes it needs to be done at a more gradual rate. Uh, so that's what we've been finding so far. You know, if we go back about 20 years one of the things that was emerging in the research on uh, this topic was really about phobias. And so if we think about phobias, when people are afraid of snakes or they're afraid of spiders, um, usually the immediate thing that we assume is that the fear is because you might get bitten, uh, they will cause some kind of harm to you physically. And it turns out that that's in part true. But there is another major component, and that is that most of these things that we're afraid of, like spiders and snakes and other Uh, things of that sort that are a cause for typical phobias, the things that most people think of as phobias. They also happen to be uh, creatures that live in places that we associate as being dirty. So let's say spiders, as an example, Uh, they tend to hang out in places that are dark, dusty, not so clean. And what that ends up leading to is uh, this aspect of disgust being a component of it, and what we refer to as the disease avoidance aspect of of phobias. So what that refers to is that our concern with being in touch with spiders and snakes uh, and things like that has to do with the fact that they tend to be in places that we deem unclean, and therefore they pose a different kind of hazard. They pose a danger for causing us to get sick. And disgust itself as an emotion is one designed expressly for avoiding illness. Uh, such as ingesting a contaminant or getting in contact with something that could harm us physically through illness.
0: So it's interesting. You're saying that you know fear doesn't necessarily have to be something that poses an immediate threat to us or or puts us in danger. It could be a little bit more subtle or indirect.
3: Oh, sure. Yeah, there are plenty of things that people avoid out of you know a sense of fear or a stated reason having to be based on fear but where the concern is that the outcome of being exposed to that may have longer-term consequences. And so this is where it becomes more difficult to tease apart so that, let's say, people who come to uh, get treatment for phobias, they will frequently report that they are afraid. And that's an accurate description. Their physical reactions are consistent with what we think of for fear. But On closer inspection and after doing things that involve exposure to the things that are um, fear-based stimuli, then you start to find that some of these other aspects start to emerge, and and in particular the one that's consistently pretty pronounced is discussed.
0: How how can fear affect someone in the long term?
3: I mean, it's pretty complex. I mean, there are a few different major ways that it can affect people. If there is long-term and persistent fear, and I guess if we think of basic phobias, uh, what ends up happening is that people will avoid all the circumstances and situations where they might encounter that phobia. So even uh, something like spider phobia, which is not a very typical problematic phobia in this geographic region, but let's suppose that someone really had uh, very bad spider phobia. You know, there would be places that they could... they would really not be able to go. Basements would probably be out of the question, crawl spaces in homes. Spiders are a little bit more active if you live in suburban areas. Um, I know for myself, most mornings when I walk out of the house, uh, there are spider webs around on my porch. And so if you're spider phobic and you see spider webs, well most likely you're going to start thinking about where's the spider, and it's going to make it harder for you to go around to places where you might encounter them. And so in severe cases, it might even affect the ability to travel in the evening because you would uh, unwittingly encounter a web, maybe encounter a spider. So that's just one very small example of how fear in the long term or phobias in the long term might affect someone. Um, There are other notable effects that are adverse with phobias, so with enough avoidance, uh, but with the constant concern that you might encounter, the thing that you're fearful of, uh, the risk becomes very great that you'll have physical symptoms that are going to be problematic. People with anxiety disorders in general uh, tend to have a higher risk for gastrointestinal problems, uh, cardiac problems, because these things are you know, fairly high-level stressors that are without real good predictable relief. And that's, and that's probably the biggest difficulty that happens when people uh, seek treatment for fear, is that it's so unpredictable, even though there is this great effort to get it under control and to predict all the circumstances and places where the uh, feared items are going to be encountered, that it nevertheless becomes uh, almost impossible to contain. And then it leads to all these other kinds of physical manifestations.
0: Is there a certain pleasure in fear? Do, do we actively seek fear sometimes to, to kind of be excited by it? Or is there something within it that we actually like?
3: You know, there are a lot of different theories that are out there to account for this. And one uh, postulate that I've heard is that sometimes people will basically rehearse the experience of having fear. And so if you go exposed to horror movies and you get that kind of physical Rise from a uh, horror movie. That is basically an opportunity to practice a survival skill uh, without it being, in fact, dangerous. And it, and it can be quite enjoyable. There is something that can be pleasurable about that because there is that uh, survival aspect that's getting strengthened. Uh, so there is this supposition about that. I believe it's, a, it's not a terribly well tested one, but it's a theory that is out there. And, and it's probably about as good an explanation as any for what attracts people to horror movies. As someone who likes horror movies myself, I uh, could appreciate that stance.
0: One last question. I want to ask you if you personally have any fears, phobias, or anything in particular that disgusts you.
3: you know, there was a time that I was quite afraid of going to the dentist. I had I had kind of a bad experience with a dentist, and, uh, and that made it very difficult for me for a while to go back and get things like uh, dental work done. But happily, I was able to overcome that. As far as things that disgust me, the, the one thing that really disgusts me, it's actually a food related uh, issue. I, am, I, I find mushrooms completely disgusting. I'm
1: not
0: afraid of the Thanks to all my guests for exploring the topics of monstrosity and disgust with me. This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. We'll be back next Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you've missed a show. They're all available to download as a podcast or stream online at WFUV.org. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates from the Focon team. Stay tuned. George Bodarki and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.